Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Hello. Hi. Welcome to the show. Hi. <laughs> okay. You have a new book. <laughs> So we're already going. All right. <laughs> yes, we are now. Okay. Um, please tell us, let's let's just start off with the basics. Please tell us about who you are, your new book, and what it was that brought you to write it. Uh, well, first of all, it's just, it's an honor to be here. I love your show, Jason, and um, been listening for a long time. So uh, great to be here. And yeah, my name is Marlena Seven Bremner. And I'm an artist and a writer. I've been painting probably for over 12 years now, um, self-taught oil painter, and also an avid um, student of the occult and spiritual world. So I have, um, throughout all the time I've been painting, I've been studying and writing and compiling ideas. And eventually this culminated into my first book, which is creative, or I'm sorry, Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy, The Emerald Tablet, The Corpus Hermeticum, and The Journey Through the Seven Spheres. And this is about hermeticism as a practice, as a philosophy, as a mystical experience of life. Um, it's about getting in touch with the seven traditional planets um, and how they manifest through us and in our lives and how to work with these. And yeah, it's. Um, I think a pretty comprehensive overview of hermeticism and the history of it and what it's about. So, so yeah. it, seems, it seems like you got into hermeticism as an extension of the creative process. Is that, is that right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've always been interested in um, the esoteric and, you know, as a painter, I was really interested in expressing the things that I would study and learn and, this just sort of all grew together, especially my interest in alchemy and applying alchemical principles into the creative process. And through that experience, learning a lot about alchemy and how this can be used in our lives for healing and for transformation. Um, and through that, I just, I became really interested in the traditions that alchemy was rooted in. And that's kind of what brought me to hermeticism. Interesting. So do you feel that at this point, do you feel well, I guess a better question to ask is how has your relationship to the ideas of alchemy and hermeticism changed during that process? 
did you maybe start off with them thinking about them purely as an artistic or symbolic thing? And if so, did that change? Mm, well, I mean, at first, you know, when you're first getting into this stuff, it's just really, um, it's so occulted and it's so difficult to understand what's actually being discussed in these alchemical texts and what's going on there. So my initial introduction to alchemy was through the works of Carl Jung. So I came at it initially through a psychological lens and through a lens of um, self-transformation and healing. But it was at this time that I was also teaching myself how to oil paint and, you know, going through a lot of my own self-healing work and um, using these alchemical principles through the creative process to accomplish that. So at first, what was so arcane and difficult to understand started to become more and more clear the more that I uh, dove into my studies of original manuscripts and stuff like that, going beyond Jung, and also talking to practicing alchemists and um, anything I could, reading anything I could get my hands on on the subject. Um, so over time, I began to understand it as a creative process in itself, the alchemical work. And you can apply that in the laboratory in a physical way um, or in other physical ways through the creative process, whether that's painting or writing or making music or raising a child or whatever it is that you're being creative in your life with. And, you know, we're all creators. So we all have access to this, um, to this creative, um, work that we can do with alchemy so would it be correct to say that you see it as a kind of a like a series of creative stages you can go through to do anything basically yeah yeah i do see it that way yeah i mean just living life and um being creative with the way that you live your life is the very basic way that we can do that and I think these stages are happening at multiple levels of our being. We could be going through multiple different stages at the same time in different areas of our life. And it's just really about um, understanding these processes so that we know that we're continuously in a state of transformation. And it's helpful to know what part of that proce process that we're in. So maybe for the audience and also for me, because I've never fully gotten a handle on alchemy, um, I've always been interested in in kabbalah and ritual um i actually asked the artist jeff hoke about this recently also so for the audience and also for me can you just give us an overview of the stages of alchemy you don't have to get like super detailed obviously because we'll be here forever <laughs> but you know just like a general kind of schema of the major the major stages along the way and what they mean yeah so there's different schools of thought and this has changed over time but um i like the four stage model of the alchemical process some people have a three stage some people go through seven stages but i think the most um traditional one is the four stage and so it begins with the negredo which is the blackening and this is really what i understand to be shadow work and going into the depths of ourselves and kind of facing the really difficult things within us um, that we need to face in order to grow and transform. And so this is often portrayed in alchemy with images of corpses or skeletons or ravens, like really dark imagery, because it is a difficult phase of the process and it's where we have to begin. Um, but from there, that darkness begins to transform when we allow ourselves to really sit with it and look at these things. 
And the next stage of the process is called the albedo or the whitening. And so this is a stage of purification, of cleansing, um, often associated with water and um, with washing. And I associate it with the process of dissolution, which is sort of like where dreams and reality start to blend together. And this is a really important um, pivotal point in the creative process where we're getting a lot of inspiration and starting to see the world in a symbolic way. Um, getting out of our own egoic fixation, which we were stuck in, in the previous phase, kind of connecting with all of reality. Um, and from there, this begins to mature in this third stage called the citrinitas, which is the yellowing. And this is like a growth stage or a maturation stage, um, like a solar ripening, you know, like the, the fruit is starting to ripen on the tree and um, we're moving along in our process and things are developing. And finally, we reach the rubedo, the final stage, the reddening. And this is the completion of the work. So, you know, in any creative process, we're going to reach the end of it. But in a spiritual sense, um, this is like a new realization, a new awareness that we've gained through this whole process of transformation and growth. And this will stay with us in the same sense that the philosopher's stone at the end of the great work of alchemy is made impervious to fire. You know, it's impenetrable, it's indestructible. And so this awareness that we've gained by going through this spiritual creative process is something that we hold with us. And yet it's a cyclical process. So we don't just reach the end and then we're done. We keep going through these stages in different ways throughout our life and continually refining and perfecting this spiritual awareness, the philosopher's stone that we've acquired and attained within ourselves. Interesting. Yeah. I like simple. Simple's good. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> um, yeah. And I was going to ask you about it being a cyclical process because that I think is a really important point about anything in self-growth or psychology or magic or whatever we we want to call it like i think that people get very very hung up on the idea of there being a final stage that they have to get to yeah yeah it also occurred to me while you were saying that that i love the idea of there being stages to things just because most people when they first approach this material just focus on the goal and that they just want to get to that and i thought it was really interesting i didn't realize this before until you just said it that um the blackening stage is the first one like mm -hmm. what people would call shadow work i guess um i just call it every you know every morning when i wake up but um i think that occult people in general get a very bad rap for being quote-unquote dark um and i I think it's really interesting that the darkening stage is the first stage that that's what you have to go to first and that that would obviously give people maybe the wrong idea <laughs> but also that that seems very psychologically healthy to me because you want to take care of all of your shadow aspects before you start spiritual bypassing or pretending you're something more than you are yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's said that the prima materia, the primal matter that precedes creation, um, which is the starting material in the alchemical work, this is like undifferentiated consciousness. It's the really unknown parts of ourselves. And it's said that that's where the philosopher's stone is born from. So we can't really even begin the work without diving into that. 
um, because the stone is hidden within us. It's always within us, but in order to access it, we kind of have to break open this egg of the prima materia and find what's inside. So, so we have to be willing to kind of go into uncomfortable places in order to, to move forward with this. So if you're comfortable, it would be really interesting um, if you wanted to talk about maybe how some of these stages have played out in your life, or if there are stories that come to mind that you want to share about how this stuff has worked for you in the real world, so to speak, because that's yeah, all helpful. Yeah, um, I had a very powerful experience with this, actually, which is um, why I decided to write about it. But when I was younger, I was very spiritual and, you know, from a young age working with tarot and magic and um, particularly like natural magic and getting into energy healing and stuff. But I had this kind of one-sided perspective of spirituality. And I felt like the universe is um, it's all love and light, you know, and that I was pretty far along and doing really great. And, um, you know, there was a lot going on inside of me that I had not looked at a lot of stuff that was kind of buried. Um, and I was basically spiritual bypassing all of that. And what this led to was um, in my mid twenties, I ended up having this crazy DMT experience. And um, I had been kind of feeling, sensing that I needed to be broken open. And I didn't really know what that meant. I just felt like something was missing, like I couldn't access something inside of myself. And so I was kind of on this quest to figure out how to do this. And someone offered me DMT one night and I heard a lot about it and read a ton about it and was super curious. So I decided to try it and it was not at all what I expected. And I got exactly what I had been looking for, which was to be completely broken open and shattered. And my experience of it all I can equate it to was a like very visceral confrontation with that prima materia, this place of just complete chaos and indifference and coldness. And it was pretty horrifying to, to be there. And it felt like it went on for an eternity. And um, when I came out of it, my life was flipped upside down. Um, it was like my entire nervous system had been rerouted. And the things that used to help me self-regulate, you know, all the practices I developed with yoga and meditation and long walks and all of this stuff, receiving body work, like none of it really seemed to work anymore. And it would just induce immediate panic attacks. Huh. And this went on for a couple of years. And at the time I was studying polarity therapy. So I was in a healing environment, you know, learning about healing. And um, so I was working with that, but I was also... Um, being introduced to Carl Jung and practicing my oil painting and all of this was kind of converging together. And the only thing that really seemed to help me was the creative process and applying these alchemical principles and understanding that I had confronted a really deep part of myself that I'd been ignoring up until then. And, um, that I had to deal with it. I had to face what was there. And this took me several years to go through. So it was like a true dark night of the soul, um, really life-changing, really difficult. Um, I had so much anxiety and self-doubt and, um, you know, it's so much social anxiety and it was a really difficult time. So I made it through that. And I think that 
it was working with these alchemical processes that really helped me because being able to understand that this was a temporary temporary place that I was in and that it would transform allowed me to eventually see that light on the horizon and to move into the following stages. And so I watched myself go through these stages. Um, with the next one, things really did seem to dissolve and I really did seem to feel my connection with all things and everything became a little bit lighter and a little bit more inspired and clear. And, um, and then, you know, my work just kept developing from there. And eventually, um, I had this kind of realization of what reality is and where my place was in it and what my relationship was to the cosmos and sort of a very felt sense of all of that. And I feel like that was sort of the completion of that round of the work for me. Um, but it has just continued to go through these cycles of evolution. But the thing is, once you really go through it, it becomes easier each time that you do it. So like in the making of the philosopher's stone in the final stage, um, you go through all of the phases again to perfect the stone, to bring it to its ultimate potency and power. And so I feel like that's what we do. We reach that final stage and then we're just refining and increasing the potency of this consciousness that we've reached. And how, how would you define that consciousness? Well, in the hermetic sense, it's what we would think of as gnosis, true self-knowledge, really understanding the truth of the immortal essence that we are and overcoming the fear of death and mortality, understanding that all things are eternal within the cosmos and that we're just part of this ever-changing life force moving through it. I think, you know, it's different for each of us and it, I think it's always changing that gnosis and I feel like gnosis is kind of synonymous with the philosopher's stone and alchemy. And what is reality? <laughs> <laughs> now that you've seen it, please tell us. Well, I mean, in the hermetic sense, that's how I see it. It's in the hermetic sense, everything is part of this one divine energy, everything emanating from a unified source. So we experience ourselves in this state of separation, in this world of duality, but true reality is that we're part of a unified consciousness. And we can tap into that and we can um, access that unified consciousness through developing our own, you know, powers and um, understanding of these various levels of, of existence. Outstanding. So this, I'm guessing, did this directly lead you to going to Egypt or was that a separate? No, I've been wanting to go to Egypt for years, just dreaming about it and um, fantasizing about it. And, you know, I tend to do things when it feels like the right time, when it feels inspired, um, rather than trying to make things happen. Um, so if I really want something, I will. I will work with manifestation techniques to attain it. But with this, I just felt like it would happen when it needed to happen, when I was ready for it. And so it just so happened that after I finished the second book, which is coming out next year, um, I got, this woman got in touch with me who runs groups going to Egypt. And um, 
runs the Alchemic Mystery Field School. And her name is Aubrey Bamdad. And she was interested in my art. And we just started talking. And she asked me about my interest in um, Egyptian cosmology, which I write about in the book. And um, anyway, she told me about her trip. And she suggested that I I become part of the next group. And I was like, oh, wow, that would be amazing. But I have no idea how I would afford that right now. And it just seems kind of crazy. I don't know. And I really wasn't sure about it, but I got so much positive encouragement from people around me. And I felt like the timing was just so good with finishing the books. So even though I didn't have near enough money for it, I just decided to say yes to the invitation and um, did a little bit of action on my part to kind of um, see if I could generate the money. You know, I had a big sale, told people what I was trying to do and I had the money so quickly. It was crazy. It just all came together in such a magical way. Um, and of course, you know, I did manifestation techniques around that as well and visualizing all of this happening. And, um, it was really just such a blessing that it worked out. And so anyway, went in September with the group and had a wonderful, uh, I think it was about 20 days in Egypt. Uh, going through all the pyramids, getting to go inside of them, going to many different temples up up and down the Nile. Really a beautiful experience. So having gone through this experience, um, I think there's a broader question here, which is how did the symbols of the tradition look to you on the other side, having gone through this? Did they suddenly all make sense? And there's a more specific question, which is, how did Egypt seem to you? But maybe we should just start with Egypt. How did how did Egypt seem to you visiting it after having gone through all of this? Did you feel like there was resonance with all of these ancient um, symbols and hieroglyphs and architecture and, and so forth? So much so. Yeah, I really had this sense of feeling like I was coming home. And, you know, I've never had like past life recall or anything like that. So it wasn't like that. It was just a feeling of familiarity and comfort and also sadness to see the state of some of the temples, you know, and to see so many of the reliefs having been completely defaced. Um, and yeah, you know, just the ruin over time. But overall, it was just this sense of coming home, like, I belonged there. I felt very, very at peace there. And seeing the hieroglyphs and the different reliefs of all these gods that I've been studying and working with was really profound and beautiful. And I had a lot of interesting moments in some of the temples, um, you know, just flashes of insight or uh, synchronicities and deep connections with things that I was seeing. Um, and also, you know, understanding that hermeticism is rooted in ancient Egypt. Um, I was sort of looking at things with that eye and I saw some interesting stuff like um, a relief of the deity Thoth, who's the, you know, predecessor of Hermes Trismegistus, um, the patron deity of hermeticism. So Thoth is the ibis headed God of wisdom and magic and of the moon of alchemy and astrology and astronomy, all of these sciences and arts. And there was this relief of him in the temple of Abydos, um, temple of Seti I. And he is offering an ankh to um, Seti I in the form of Osiris, the deceased God. But in his other hand, he's holding two staves 
and each one is entwined with the cobra. And one staff is the, I believe it's the lotus wand of upper Egypt, and the other staff is the uh, papyrus reed of lower Egypt. And then each of the serpents at the top of the staffs, they're wearing the two crowns of upper and lower Egypt, so the white crown and the red crown. And so these colors, white and red, are really important in alchemy. It's the uh, they symbolize the lunar and solar opposites, the father and the mother, the king and the queen. And their union is the uh, one of the main goals of the alchemical work. And this signifies unifying these polarized opposites within us. Um, psychologically, we would think of this as the conscious and the unconscious, or the right and left hemispheres of the brain, bringing these things to union. And so seeing this depiction of Thoth holding these two staves with the serpents, so much like the caduceus of Hermes Trismegistus, and then these alchemical colors of the crowns, um, and this idea of unifying upper and lower Egypt, so um, closely related to this idea of the unification of the upper and lower parts of ourselves, or the macrocosm and the microcosm. So that was really profound to me to see that. And yeah, so many other things Another thing that was really fascinating was this feeling like the statues and the reliefs are in soul. Like you can feel the presence of the gods there. And we got to go into the Sekhmet sanctuary, which is one of the only places where um, a statue of the gods is like in place where it was found. Like it hasn't been moved to a museum or something. So there's this beautiful Sekhmet statue and you really, really feel as you're looking into the face of this statue, the presence of this goddess and the power of this goddess. And in the Hermetica, we read about um, the Egyptian practice of ensouling statues. So calling the gods down through different invocations and rituals and words of power and incenses, all of these things, calling the gods down to inhabit a physical body. And to me, this is so important as an artist, because I think that's what great works of art do. They're actually calling spirits into them, gods into them. And when you look at these great works of art, you can feel that soulful presence. And that's why they're so impactful and so important. That's so cool. Yeah, uh, that's a big thing in in Hinduism. It also makes me think of Austin Sparrow, but that's so, that's so interesting. I've never been to Egypt. I really should go. Um, and so this is so interesting to hear about. Let me ask you this. Being there, I mean, you've already kind of touched on a little bit, but being there, being in that environment physically, what was the sense you got of what, for lack of a better way of putting it, what Egypt was? Like, what was going on there? What were they doing? What did it, what was your, you know, your your gnosis of it? Like, what was your feeling of what it was in context? Mm. Well, that's a big question. I feel like there were a lot of different things going on at different levels of society. Um, you know, like in the pyramids, those are such interesting structures. Um, they don't, they're, I don't think they're tombs. Um, I don't think they were used as tombs. I think they were used for some other purpose, perhaps like power generation, but to me, it seems more likely that they were ritual spaces to enact a death and rebirth process. You know, you go through these long, dark passageways, really difficult to get through. Um, and you can imagine they were probably pretty dark. You know, they weren't lit up the way they are now, like 
you probably had to really go through the dark night of the soul to get into these pyramids. And then you get to this inner chamber, like the inner chamber within the brain, you know, this sort of rising of energy into the higher centers of our energy body reflected in the pyramid structure. Um, and then as you emerge and you go back out through those passageways, you see the light coming and you're reborn um, into mm. the light again. So I feel like yeah, as you physically leave the pyramid, you're like going out into the light. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at the structures of like the pyramid of Unas, like the different chambers and rooms and the inscriptions that are on the walls, like in the pyramid texts, um, they reflect these different stages of death and rebirth and the different spells and rituals that you need to go through in order to successfully navigate these stages. So I want to continue my study of that um, and go back and, you know, be able to read the things that I'm seeing on the walls. But right now I'm just kind of diving into the coffin texts and the pyramid texts and trying to understand those. Um, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I've always figured that they were, well, not figured. I think I read at some point, it was either Stephen Flowers or somebody like that said, um, no, they were clearly initiation chambers. And that just makes a lot more felt sense to me. And yeah. one guy would have this entire thing built as his tomb. It's like, okay, like maybe, but that even, even, for ancient kings that seems a bit excessive waste of resources um, but that makes a lot of sense and when i've read the egyptian book of the dead which is beautiful it is so obviously a script for an, an initiation rather than you know maybe it's also considered to be a stages that happen after you die like the like the bardo but mm -hmm. for me it's like you know it's like they lead you into a chamber they weigh your heart and and you have to do the negative confession this is obviously an, an initiation into a priesthood or you know magical order so yeah. that's a lot more sense to me what you're saying yeah and i mean isn't it it's also called the book of going forth by day like that's the actual title of it yes so that to me implies like this is not just for after you die it's um training while we're alive and if we can do that successfully while we're alive, how much more capable will we be of doing that when we pass, you know? Well, for me, that's the true, I shouldn't, I shouldn't see, say the, um, this is a true meaning of initiation, which is basically what you described of your own personal experience, where it's, you go through the death process while still alive. Yeah. And then you, but you're, you, and then you get to live fearlessly, hopefully, or more more fearlessly than the average joe yeah yeah i wouldn't say i'm fearless but <laughs> <laughs> more more understanding of of the big picture i think hopefully exactly yeah and i think that's what the hermetic path is really helpful for is seeing the big picture the bigger cycles of of the universe and its evolution and not getting so caught up in the little details Definitely, definitely. And it really does seem that it, I mean, hermeticism is not a path for, for everyone, but I am a, I do feel, believe that there is a path for everyone. It's just not that necessarily all paths are for everyone, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And one thing that you talk about in the book is that, you know, we do seem to be in a kind of hermetic renaissance, which I think is definitely true. I've seen it in my life. Uh, I think that's absolutely true. We have access to all the material. We have access to people randomly showing up and giving you DMT 
anticipate what you needed. <laughs> and that type of thing, that's definitely part of it. Uh, and, uh, and that type of thing. So I'm really curious your thoughts about that. Because outside of, I don't know, outside of a few other periods of history, like the Renaissance or Victorian England or uh, maybe the 60s, um, mm -hmm. Prague before the Thirty Years' War, it's hard to think of a time that has been more of a period of hermetic renaissance and magical awakening and maybe never more than now because of the internet probably never you know it's like this is the golden age and i felt that for a long time so i'm definitely curious about your thoughts about that in terms of hermeticism as a tradition overall and you say in the beginning of the book which i thought was really interesting that you know people know buddha jesus etc but they don't know hermes but maybe that will change yeah i think this is perhaps the time for it, it really does feel like a flowering of hermetic ideals and so much interest in the subject. You know, when I tell people what I do and I'm meeting people, like oftentimes people will say, oh yeah, I'm just starting to learn about that. I'm really curious. And um, I get that so much. And I think just the way that we are able to connect with each other in um, these esoteric occult circles that we've never been able to do before, you know, like I've seen that in my lifetime too, growing up and having an interest in the spiritual realms. Like I felt so isolated and alone. I didn't think other people were on this path, you know, and it was like difficult to find other people. And now it's so easy because of social media and these ways that we can connect with each other and share ideas and the whole podcast trend and all of us having these important conversations about these subjects. Um, I think it really is a potent time for this to come back and for this to um, go through a whole new renaissance, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. And it's happening and it has been happening for a while now. I mean, I mean, I remember even in the nineties, you know, access was so limited. It was like, you know, the satanic Bible by Anton LaVey <laughs> you know? or, or, uh, you know, one or two curly books. And now it's, you can get literally anything and talk to anyone. And now there's a another problem, which is how do you separate signal from noise? Because we have so much information available. But um, I think it's incredibly. I, I'm. I have to say, it's like I'm. It's gone way better than I expected it to, and that's great. And but I also at the same time, I mean, it could easily go away because these periods always go away if you look back through history. You know, it's yeah. like the, the, anytime there's a, re a renaissance, there's always a pushback and we've, yeah. we've seen some, um, <laughs> intimations of what that might look like in the last few years. So yeah. we should definitely take as much, take as much ground as we can during this time. And I think one of the most important ways to do that is to synthesize as much information as you possibly can, and then leave a written record of what you figured out. Like if it's not written down, it's not going to last. And that's why I think books are so important. Podcasts are important too, but books are going to last longer because podcasts, it's, the internet is ephemeral. So. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I mean, that's exactly my attitude with the painting and with the writing um, and, you know, synthesizing my ideas into a book. It's like, I just have this sense, like it's important to make sure things are in a, in a state that they can be preserved and they can endure, you know, and everything online 
it could just be wiped away with one big solar flare, right? So like, what do we have that's real? What do we have that we can hold in our hands? Um, I think that's where we need to invest energy and, you know, continue to use these tools that we have with technology, but not to rely on them as much. Yeah, I agree completely. And I, I think things are not in full manifestation until they're in physical form. It's just like a basic axiom of magic, but, but yeah. books, paintings, paintings are great because you can directly communicate music too. I think you can directly communicate a state of consciousness to somebody, but paintings even more so because they're so as you know, I'm preaching to the choir here. I'm not a painter, but, <laughs> but uh, there's there's so much there's so many levels to them, and you can encode so much meaning into them that can be kind of unraveled over time. Yeah, and so much that can be expressed in in visual form that you can't express in words. So one of the things about the Hermetic tradition that I think is always confusing is it's kind of like magic. It can really mean almost anything in the sense that I mean, just like academically the hermetic tradition in the first millennium was a literary genre of works attributed to and please add details or 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 correct me if, if there's things that you know that are that are are different uh, a literary genre where where of works attributed to hermes trismegistus but it was kind of like a group pen name in the same way that the early situationists all wrote under the pen name luther Blissett for for anonymity so anybody could be hermes and everybody could be hermes it wasn't one individual. Um, so it was more like a literary genre. And if that genre was to be defined, it would be really tricky. But I, if I was to define it, I would say usually there's some type of nod to Egyptian uh, ideas, but maybe not. But the general idea being that everything is one substance like the basic hermetic axiom being that I think actually the best way that hermeticism for me has ever been summarized was by Philip K. Dick in Vallis, where he says that hermeticism is the idea that the universe is a hologram. Like if you take a, like a literal physical hologram card and cut it up, every single piece of that will have the entirety of the image. Um, not like a projected hologram, like Tupac, but, but like a literal physical hologram card. And essentially hermeticism that says that's how the universe works. Everything is contained within everything. Or William Blake put it, you know, the universe in a grain of sand. And therefore, theoretically, and this is not necessarily, a magic is not necessarily part of hermeticism, but operative magic took it further and said, well, if that's the case, then if we affect parts of the universe, maybe we can affect the whole, which would be the basic idea of operative magic. But hermeticism in itself is not necessarily involved in magic or attempting to make things happen. I think it's more of just a, a general attempt to understand the universe as a holism. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Um, I think... I think it's helpful to understand, you know, the term hermeticism is, it's a more broad term than if we're talking about strictly hermetism. So hermeticism does kind of connotate like the whole Western esoteric tradition and these, you know, practices of magic and alchemy and astrology um, and so many other things besides that, like Rosicrucianism or theosophy or Kabbalah, all these things can kind of be understood within the lens of hermeticism. They're kind of in certain ways, part of that tradition. Um, but hermetism is a little more specific and that refers to those texts that emerged in the first few centuries of the common well, I, I had no idea there was a difference. 
Yeah, there's like some scholars these days that are making that differentiation. And I think it's just helpful to see it in that way. So there's these kind of traditional texts that are attributed to Hermes, as you were describing, and including like the Emerald Tablet and the Corpus Hermeticum and the Nag Hammadi um, Hermetic texts that were written in Coptic and different fragments that we have from this time period. And these are all considered... um, traditional hermetica. Um, And then there's all of these other kind of more technical hermetica, some of which were emerging around the same time, like the Greek magical papyri, um, which are very magical texts, you know, and so this, and also reference Hermes and these different Egyptian deities. Um, But those aren't considered part of this theological hermetica. So there's a little difference there, and yet they're related. And I think in terms of hermeticism today, we kind of need to look at all of that and have an understanding of all of that to get the full picture of what what these teachings are. That's super interesting. I I did not realize that at all. So you're saying that hermeticism is the broad kind of religious category and hermetism is the specific texts. Well, hermetism, I think, would actually be more of the theological teachings. Okay. You know, if you think of the, the books of the Corpus Hermeticum, um, there's not a whole lot of magic or astrology or alchemy in there. A little bit of astrology, a little bit of magic, but nothing really technical. There's no like recipes or rituals per se. Um, these are more like scriptures or something that you read that are initiatory in the sense that you read them and they kind of put you through these initiation processes just by your own intellectual, spiritual emotional relationship to them as you read them. Whereas like the Greek magical papyri and other magical texts that were emerging during this time and later on, um, these are like more technical manuals that perhaps could help us attain the same process of initiation. Have you spent time with those? Um, A little bit. I'm starting to go a little bit deeper with the papyri now. Um, Yeah, that I keep trying to remind myself to get to because i know that there's been a lot more there's been a lot more released on those i think stephen skinner put a book out on that or something like that Um, and i know that there's been a lot more attention on those recently as kind of more primary sources i know the bornless one i think comes from from those Mm -hmm. but i haven't spent a whole lot of time with them and that's just it's just like a good reminder it's like yeah like i should probably look look into that it seems like Mm -hmm. a thing to be uh, Mm -hmm. familiar with yeah. Outside of the fact that, it, from my understanding, it pretty much underlies quite a lot of the Western occult material, anyways. It does. Uh, it ends yeah. up in Agrippa and the Golden Dawn and things like that. Yeah, or in Crowley, you see similarities there too. But yeah, I think, I mean, that's what I'm really interested in is going back to these source texts and kind of familiarizing myself with these so that I can understand, you know, how they informed things in a more modern context, like the Golden Dawn and the Lima and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's so important and available for for the first time, maybe not in, in a major way now. And this is like, like every time I have these conversations, I'm just like, I wish there was like the equivalent of a university for this. I think probably we all have thought that at some point. It's like, I wish there was some place where everyone was just studying this and comparing notes and having... Yeah quote unquote peer review. 
you know, and, and I've been trying to put that together with magic.me, but this magic.me is online, you know, it's like, it would be so useful to just have people together working through this stuff and not in like an initiatory order or a personality called or any of that horse shit, but just like people comparing notes and, and there's gotta be, look, I mean, like there's gotta be some structure to put that in place where people can do that without having personality conflicts. People have, you know, corporate world experience and HR experience and all that. I mean, um, or, or people who are good at managing people. I'm not, but, um, there's gotta be a way to do that where people can get along and get over their own kind of individual egos. Cause that really is kind of the pitfall with hermeticism. It's like, it is yeah. the hard path. People kind of like, like percolate in their own worlds for so long. And then they like meet other people. And it's like, no, it's not like that. How dare you? But there's gotta be a way for everyone to kind of, I just think people would make, we would make so much faster prog progress coming to a better understanding of this. If we were able to just delete the personality cults entirely I don't like personality cults. I don't like initiatory orders and not in the sense of initiation. Initiation is critical, but in the sense of like, I am a fifth degree and you're a third degree. So you have to do what I say. It's like, it's, it's, it's like, great, but you live in a trailer park. It's like, it's like completely ridiculous. There's got to be a way to do that. And I don't know, I'm just talking out loud here, but. Yeah. Well, I think that would be amazing. And I mean, it seems like you are at least getting a start with that with magic.me in the online sense. Um, but yeah, having a physical place where we could compare notes and talk and teach and learn from each other, that would be incredible. It I would be. That's kind of the ultimate dream for me. And I know Damien Eccles has tried, or he, he was trying at least, I don't know where it's at now to put together a school, but I don't know if that's beyond him. Um, but I just, I do think that with with the magical world, as we all know, it's really easy to, for people to get into their egos and have their own little fiefdoms. And everyone's like, I am the wizard. No, I am the wizard. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, we can all be the wizard. It's okay. We can all, we can all have fun together. Uh, <laughs> but it's like... I think if at a certain point, and I'm not just, I'm not, this is just like a completely detached observation and has nothing to do with, you know, it's just a completely detached observation. Just considering things historically, if at some point, all of the knowledge of the current time period is not consolidated, and that does mean putting it in books, and it does mean bringing people together to work on it, it's going to be lost because we're going to, what's going to happen is give it 10, maybe not even 10 years, we're going to get, you know, Christian fascism. It's already happening. Yeah. You know? And it's like, you can see, and I, I say this a lot to the point where I'm like, maybe I shouldn't say it because I don't want to like manifest it, God forbid. But it's like, you can see all the currents, at least in the US of, you know, Christian theocracy, um, taking people's rights away. Uh, and then like just QAnon obsession with their Satan's oh, yeah. everywhere. It's like that yeah. could turn so quick. And the oh, idea yeah. that like we've moved on since like the, the, <laughs> the Salem witch trials, it's like, not, not really. It's just on Facebook now, you know, like people are yeah. not that, uh, discerning. So, and I mean, like it was like that in the eighties. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we're, um, 
out of the woods in terms of, you know, fanatical people and witch hunts and stuff like that. And I, I've even seen little spurts of that pop up in my own life. And, um, there was a period in Olympia and it was kind of revolving around the whole Pizzagate scandal where an artist friend of mine was really being persecuted and accused of being a Satanist. And was that, was that Arrington? It was. Yeah. yeah. I remember him. He, he played a show at my house in Santa Cruz back in the early 2000s. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I, I don't know him, but I, I remember him. He was, he was around, he was a presence. Yeah. He was a good friend, him and his partner, China. Um, they were my studio neighbors in Olympia for a long time. And then my roommates for a little while also, but yeah. Yeah. I, I remember that. And it was like that whole pizza gate thing. And it's like, wait, Arrington did not, wait, what? <laughs> like, how is he involved in this? It's like so insane. Yeah. And using his art as examples that he was like involved in these crazy occult satanic rituals and stuff like that. Like just insane. And I, you know, with my own work and stuff, I was like pretty nervous for a minute there. Um, well, yours is pretty innocuous, you know, it's like my, my, like there's a lot of people out there who are like, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of easy targets. Hopefully I'm not one of them, but I probably am. You know, it's like Mitch Horowitz is like going around straight up, like being a Satanist in public, which is quite funny and brave. I think <laughs> it's just like, yeah, like why just go for it, you know, <laughs> but, um, yeah, we'll see what happens. Hopefully it doesn't go that way, but people are, yeah, you just never know. Yeah, people are scary, much scarier than anything you're going to find in the uh, <laughs> in in magical <laughs> books. Much scarier than demons. People are very unpredictable. Well, yeah. the thing is, demons can work with us whether or not we're outwardly practicing magic or not. You know, I think they can work through us or affect us if we're not conscious of what we've got going on inside. And so, people that are kind of walking around in these unconscious ways and um, projecting their shadow all over the place. Like they could easily be working with demons and not even know it. Yeah. Well, it gets into what you were saying about the Negredo stage or going through the process of understanding your own darkness. I mean, it's like, I went through that in many ways through and had just very many, very intense experiences in magical rituals also with that, where it was just so obvious to me that, I think one of the things with magic, if you do it right, uh, and it is psychedelic in the true sense of it is mind manifesting, you are manifesting your mind outwards from yourself in symbolic form to better understand it. And one of the things that becomes real clear at a certain point is like, particularly if you do stuff like working with dark energies or demons or things like that is you do get to a point where you're like, well, this is just stuff inside me. This is not something outside of me. That's going to corrupt me or something like that. It's like, this is like an, this dark energy that I'm working with is something is, is something that was in me all the time. And it just became very clear to me that it's like one of the fundamental mechanisms of human psychology is, um, shadow projection. But just in a, and I just, it just became so clear to me in such a vis visceral way of, you know, we take all the things that we don't like about ourselves and then project them outwards as a symbol or onto people or onto a group of people and then try to destroy that symbol or person or group of people thinking that we're then going to be free from the thing that's inside of us when it's like that has nothing to do with those, those people. 
that was something that was in us and we're all doing that which is very it's very dangerous it's like it's like probably why humans are so dangerous um <laughs> i mean imagine what it would be like if we were taught these things as we're growing up you know to to look within ourselves and to investigate within and if there's something outside of us that we're really repelled by that we really are disgusted by whatever like maybe we could look within ourselves and see what it is inside of us that we're seeing reflected you know imagine how different things would be yeah even just that you know you don't need to know any magical or psychological or anything i mean that's just like i feel like anyone could get that um or as as it was once put to me you know if you see it you got to be it (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) yeah anywhere we feel that like intense reactivity it's a invitation to um to look within and to investigate you know for me, that's kind of the name of the game at this point, or it's like even Buddhism, you know, the idea people get into the idea of enlightenment, you know, it's like, for me, the idea of enlightenment, quote unquote, is having a control over your own reactivity and understanding that. I think just taking that idea of reactivity kind of cuts through so much of the the maze of um, religious and psychological and occult thinking um, in the sense that you get to understand at some point that what people are calling Maya or samsara or the illusion is really just your own reactions to external stimulus. You're generating it by your own reactivity. Um, and that that reactivity can be filed down through meditation at which point you become more free from it. And I think Mm -hmm. this is the true meaning of the oft abused idea that people are asleep uh, or our ro- robots or NPCs, as people say now. It's like what Gurdjieff said that everyone is like a robot. And he didn't literally mean that. He meant that we're we're all caught up by our own reactivity. Actually, L. Ron Hubbard said this. He got it completely right in, in Dianetics. You know, he wasn't all bad. Uh, he, he very clearly com- communicated that at the beginning of his career. It's like the reactive mind. I think he was completely right about that. Uh, it got a little weird later with Xenu and so forth. But um, he was right about that. and. For me, that's at this point the the goal of of spiritual practice. I mean, I even um, a, a year or two ago put it as simply as for me, the point of spiritual practice is being able to enter your um, which one is it? It's either the parasympathetic or sympathetic nervous system is when you're not reactive. The non parasympathetic yeah. is when you're non reactive. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, if I was to put it completely succinctly, it's like the point of spiritual practice is being able to enter your parasympathetic nervous system at will. Yeah. Period. I fully agree with that. Yeah. And I think all of these different techniques, meditation and magic, ritual magic, and working with the Hermetica, um, alchemy, all of these things kind of help us to understand what that means and how to access these states. I mean, especially just meditation, the simple act of meditating, like being able to observe our thoughts as they're passing and just let them go, just like clouds passing by, you know, not attached to them, not hold on to them, not reject them, just they're just there, you know. And also, you know, being able to self reflect and observe ourselves in our thinking patterns, observing when we're getting caught up in loops, when we're in a really negative mind state, when we're, um, caught up in conversations in our head with other people in an imaginary conversation, these kinds of unhealthy patterns that we get locked into that are actually generating 
experiences that we probably don't want to be having, you know, because thought is a very powerful mechanism. And we, we aren't taught that, you know, we aren't taught that our thoughts actually have an effect on reality. Right. I mean, just imagine if people were taught that it's like, watch what you're thinking. Like, yeah. thought, like just that one thing, particularly from a young age so that you can grow up with your brain growing in a way. Like, imagine if you're like, I mean, imagine people, if they could grow up with that knowledge so that they had the ability, not just the knowledge of regulating their own thinking, but that their brains developed with them regulating their thinking. So they had all the neural connective tissue of doing that over a whole lifetime and having that as a reflexive response rather than something that they have to read in a book when they're 34 and think about from time to time. Oh my God. What a different world we would live in. Yeah. If we didn't have to do all of that training and work later on in life, if it was just something that we grew up with and if the adults in our life had gone through that as well, you know, yeah. 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 Very different world. Very much. Um, yeah. And it's like, you know, it's like you, you think about how much, how much violence, domestic abuse, uh, broken relationships, uh, broken uh, business relationships, all of that is just out of pure reactivity. And then you also think about all the things that people do to regulate their own reactivity, like drinking and drugs and social media and all the insane stuff that they do, which is pretty much all they do from the minute they wake up to when they go to sleep. Um, I had just like, I, I think one of the most profound quote unquote magical experiences I've had in my life was when I did, um, I went on a 10 day Vipassana retreat, which um, I think you, did you do something similar to that? I think I, I did. Yeah. A few years ago. Yeah. What was your take on that? Oh man. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't like, oh man, Vipassana is going to be my life now. I'm going to do this every year and go back and serve and all. No, it wasn't like that for me, but it was a really profound experience. And um, one of the most profound parts of it was just the silence for 10 days and not speaking and being around all these other people and not talking to them, not acknowledging them verbally, you know, not even, you're not even really supposed to look at people and you go about like this for 10 days straight. And the silence that kind of, that you come into contact with inside of yourself is such a peaceful, powerful place, but it's also super challenging. You know, the kind of, you really get to see where your mind goes when you're not able to talk and engage with people. And when you're just in your own head for 10 days, you really get to see the patterns and um, it can make you feel like you're going crazy, you know? Um, so that was really kind of my experience was this profound understanding of like the deeper loops that I would get stuck in at the time, you know, and having to confront those and through that silence, actually getting to a place where they did start to release, you know, and where I got to a place where my mind was really clear and not burdened by these kind of mental loops and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's an intense experience, especially physically as well, sitting for yeah. 10 hours a day in meditation. For but, sure. Yeah, yeah. I had a, did you, what natural, did you have a, like what natural setting did you do it in? Was it like the forest or something like that? Um, it was in Washington, Southern Washington, I believe. And it was 
kind of this meadow area with a forest along the edges of the meadow. And so there were these walking paths and that was my favorite part of it was to go barefoot um, during our breaks when we weren't meditating and to do these kind of walking meditations. And the paths weren't super long. So you kind of just like go in circles, you know, but um, that was a very beautiful experience, especially early in the morning after our first meditation. So you start at like 4.30 in the morning, meditating for two hours in your room before tea, before anything, you know, it's like so grueling. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to make a confession that when I did it, I was bootlegging freeze dried coffee from the uh, <laughs> from the hall and just like storing it. And then I would just like put like put it in a cup and drink it with uh, um, hot water from the bathroom sink. Oh, my God. Uh, I, was, I know. Very bad. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's an, I forgot well, cheating. But yes, <laughs> cheating at Buddhism. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's, that's my, that's, that'll be on my tombstone. Um, but, uh, yeah, I forgot about the walking path. I did it in Joshua tree in California. So it was like out in the desert. It felt like a prison, but I, I forgot about the walking path. That was so cool. And, um, yeah, I remember like I was on the walking path one morning towards the end and I saw, um, I was talking with a guy who was there, his, his wife had died and, and he was still working through that. And we were talking, um, and we were there early in the morning on the walking paths and the sun was just starting to come up and there were sun rays coming out. And I was like, what the hell? There's actual sun rays. That's a thing. And he's like, yeah, well, you like never left the house before. And I'm like, well, I kind of stay on the computer a lot. He's like, you've never seen sun rays. And I was like, no, he's like, yes, there are actual sun rays. It's not just a thing. I'm like, okay, this is, this is blowing my mind. Um, and he was just like, he literally felt bad for me as a like profound sorrow that I had never seen this. I'm like, look, I'm a computer guy, but, um, yeah, I had a lot of profound experiences in that. I think that that's definitely not something I would recommend for beginners. If for the very, for two reasons that you mentioned, one is it's very physically grueling. I think you really need to have spent quite a long time training and meditation, um, and be able to hold posture for long periods of time. And that is not for beginners. And the other one is like, yeah, you, you can feel a little loopy. And if you don't have experience with that, there's actually things all over the internet of people saying like Vipassana made them go crazy and things like this. And it's like, well, you just went into a 10 day meditation treat with zero experience. That's trying to like run a 10 mile marathon without, you know, ever having exercised in your life and being upset that you had a bad time. But, um, yeah, it's definitely meditation boot camp. For like, sure. It, it is no easy thing. It, it, for me, it felt like a Thai prison camp, you know, but I like that, but that's just me. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, it's not a joke. And, um, it was interesting because yeah, I think around like by day four or five, um, people were leaving and, mm-hmm. and failing and quitting. And did that oh, happen yeah. with you as well? Oh yeah. Yeah. People couldn't take it. And then, um, and it was like people you wouldn't expect necessarily. They were just like, Nope, I'm out. <laughs> and then by like day seven or eight, it was just like Hellraiser. It was like the worst. It was like, I'm sure everyone was pretty much in the same zone. It was just like all like the worst shit, just like childhood stuff, just like hellish, uh, just misery. Canis, like the physical pain was the, the worst. And then like, I think around like oh, day yeah. nine, it was either day eight or nine. There was this feeling of all of a sudden the tension just broke 
in the room. It just broke and then it started raining outside. Oh, wow. And from then on, like everything was beautiful. And I think there was like a rainbow even. <laughs> it was like, um, and then from for the last like day and a half, it was just like total like release and freedom and joy for everyone. Oh, wow. That's yeah. great. Yeah. That is something that I've noticed. And I've also talked to people about the same experience where it's like, particularly when you get into Buddhist practices or you get into real serious meditative practices, particularly with groups of people like that, the weather will respond to people's mm. psychic state. Yeah, I I feel you. I've had, I feel like I've had it respond just to my personal psychic state. And then I've realized that looking at my community and talking to people like, oh no, it's not just me going through this. It's like all these people. And here it is, like the weather is completely reflecting that. And, you know, yeah. that yeah. which is above is like that which is below. Yeah, I also, I think absolutely. Or vice versa, you know, you look at really negative situations as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the big thing that I walked away from Vipassana from and the reason why I thought of it from this conversation was it's like my big spiritual enlightenment there was we live on a planet full of people who are not toilet trained. <laughs> and what I mean by that is like the thing that you kind of learned from Vipassana and, and you know, for, for those who don't know about it from the audience, it's you're basically just sitting and feeling your own body sensations and not reacting to them. Exactly. Yeah. You actually have to take a course to understand how to do that, but that's the the basic of it. And therefore you can't, you know, mentally conceptualize, you can't do ritual, you can't go fly off into some astral hallucination, you can't um, do anything except just sit with your own bodily sensations and just cope. Right. Yeah. And you're just continuously scanning from head to foot and feeling all of the sensations and all of the pain and discomfort and tension and just observing it and not reacting and not trying, not moving, you know, yeah. it can be excruciating. Yeah, absolutely excruciating. Or alternately, it can become really pleasurable and then you get lost in it and you you, you lose yourself. Did uh, you ever have the, uh, the, I think it's called Bunga? What is that? It, they, I'm pretty sure I experienced it when I was in Vipassana. It's like this kind of... When they steal your phone while you're meditating? What's that? <laughs> when they steal your phone while you're meditating. They do that off the bat, don't they? Yeah, they do. <laughs> no, it's like, um, I mean, what I experienced, maybe this isn't what Bonga is, but what I experienced was I had um, been sitting cross-legged for several days and my knee started to give me so much pain. So I eventually, after like day five, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I need a chair. And I was so surprised. Like I never would have thought I I'd be someone sitting in a chair in meditation, but like... I got a chair and it was so much better and it actually felt like my energy was able to move more freely sitting up in a chair. And I had this experience at one point where really intense, like full body experience where it felt like the upper part of my energy body and the lower part of my energy body were spinning in opposite directions. And it became so intense that I literally thought I was going to start levitating off of my chair. It was like so much energy moving through me. And I know you're not supposed to like, you know, get excited about these different things that you experience. And it's just another state, just as much as the excruciating pain is. Um, but it was pretty exciting. Were you like, at last I have the magic power. <laughs> I'm done. I'm just going to levitate out of here now. <laughs> I did not. That's pretty intense though. Yeah. 
That's great. Did it just go away after a while or did you actually levitate? <laughs> it just went away after a while, but next yeah. you got to work on that next time. Yeah. Taste that yeah. city. Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure I had all kinds of weird, weird stuff happen to me now that I'm thinking, like, I went, I think in 2018 or 2017. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was in the kind of cross knee position the entire time just because I'm comfortable with that one. But it would take me like 20 minutes to get out of it because it was so I'm not very flexible. And it's like so painful to like once you're locked in for several hours, it take me like 10, 20 minutes to get out of that posture. So I'd be kind of like slumped forward on the floor, like laying on my face and people just be like walking over me like I wasn't there. And I could have just gone through the most profound experience and people are just like walking on me. It's like, well, there's a lesson in that, too. Um <laughs> But, um, but no, I, I realized after a while, it's like, you know, for me, the big takeaway was almost everything that we do is to get away from some feeling that we don't want to have. Right. Um, and even to the point of like, oh, I'm going to do therapy for 30 years or like all this stuff or go on a quest or become a drug addict or whatever, you know, um, people chase these quote unquote healing modalities and things like that. And the, the big takeaway from for me was, well, actually, if you just don't try to fix anything, if you just sit there with the feeling, eventually your your body knows how to process it on its own. You don't need any external thing to help you with trauma uh, or anything. You just sit there and eventually your physiology, if you quit basically it's like if you quit picking at it, it will heal. Mm-hmm just like stop picking at it. And so much of what people do in the spiritual or psychological world is picking at it. Um, oh, but yeah. if you just let it be, your body can heal on its own. And and that's what I, that's what I learned. It's like, wow, like all of a sudden, like all my shit is gone. Lo and behold, I am now toilet trained and <laughs> we live on a world of non toilet trained people. And it's like, it's no wonder, you know, it's like people, it's no wonder that like people are, are, are full of shit. They don't know how to get rid of it. <laughs> They're full of this emotional shit. And and therefore, like, they give each other shit. They talk shit. They, uh, you know, they treat each other like shit. They shit all over the place. Uh, and, uh, and then one day, lo and behold, the guru comes along. He who sits on a pedestal. He who knows how to use the toilet. And he teaches the acolytes how to be toilet trained. And that's <laughs> all it is. And I was like, wow, that's all it is? Yeah, that's all it is. Well, I'm glad I learned that. What a beautiful takeaway from <laughs> Vipassana. Yeah, yeah. There's Buddhism. I love that. It's so true. It's so true. But imagine if we, I mean, imagine if we did live in a world of toilet trained people. It's like, it's like basically, imagine if we were surrounded by and raised by people who knew how to actually regulate their own emotion, their own neurology. If they knew how to regulate their own emotions by simply sitting with them and realizing that they were gen that the negativity they were experiencing in life was not something that was being put on them, but was something that was being generated by their own reactivity. Yeah. And that they could just sit until that reactivity just kind of spun down and dissipated on its own. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that's it, you know? Well, and that's the idea talked about in the Hermetica too, which is like de-energizing the seven spheres as we ascend back up through these spheres that we've descended through as our soul has come into embodiment, these energies that we've taken on from the cosmos, um, 
as we ascend back through them, as we rise up in consciousness within ourselves, we shed these different energies. So essentially de-energizing these um, parts of ourselves, polarized parts of ourselves. So we're not just like hanging back and forth between these polarities of attraction and repulsion, you know, but we're kind of like in that sattvic neutral place of just being of just observation that's super interesting because that's like i mean kabbalah is the same i mean i assume it comes from the same place which is the idea that you're reascending the spheres and it's not that you're like gaining magical power quote unquote in each of these spheres it's that you're ridding yourself of them Mm -hmm. yeah yeah these influences that are kind of unconsciously determining our fate and kind of guiding us through life ruling us the more conscious we can become of these factors the more free we are to actually live in a very creative way you know to become um more creative agents in our own destiny and i think that's what kabbalah does i think that's what the hermetic path does as well and um so many different ways to go about it but i just personally really resonate with the hermetic path and this you know, conception of the seven spheres, because it fits so perfectly with the, also with the um, esoteric anatomy of the body and the seven chakras and kind of these different ways we can understand this process. Definitely. Okay. I'm going to go way out on a limb here. Do you think that with the hermeticism, particularly with, there's so many hermetic people now, do you think that with hermeticism, there is a cross lifetime component in the sense that it's like like particularly with hermetic people like hermeticism is in my observation it is never something that people just like pick up like they went to a weekend course on it it's just like no 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 like they're born doing it you know and eventually they get a more sophisticated language it's like i have you ever met anyone who's just like i am going to learn hermeticism because this is really interesting to me and i saw a wikipedia on it and this is you know maybe this will be what the cure for what ails me it's never like that it's like somebody just comes into existence and then tries to find a language for what they are i yeah i feel you and i i definitely resonate with that you know i i think about my own childhood and like before i had any conception of any of this stuff like i was kind of obsessed with the sun and the moon you know just the those two principles and you know, in my art, looking back in my sketchbooks from when I was like 12 or 13 or something like that was a very prominent theme was like the union of the male and female and the sun and the moon. And like these two things were always present. Um, just that just happened to be a thing that you were interested yeah. in. <laughs> <It's> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. and the people that I talk to, yeah, I, I do see that oftentimes it's like it's something within them that's guiding them towards it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's not, I I don't think it's something like a collective unconscious or like something you would talk about. It's like when you meet people like hermeticism is such a bizarre and weird frequency and unique frequency. It's like, it's not just something that's around in the culture. It's like, you meet like, like for instance, like, you know, we both know William Kiesel. William's great, right? You know, it's like mm-hmm. William Kiesel is William Kiesel. Like he is a unique individual. Like he is a oh, yeah. hermetic magician, right? But it's like, how many William Kiesels do you know? Like there's <laughs> only one William Kiesel, you know, but you meet that guy and you're like, yeah, that's that's that guy. Like you immediately get where he's coming from. But it's like yes. such a specific frequency that you like try to think about, like, you know, do I know anyone else like that? Not, not, not so much. Like William is William, you know. 
Yeah, I got to spend a few days with him when I went to do the book launch at Mortlake um, just last month. And we had some amazing conversations. He's such a special individual. And one of the conversations we had was just like um, how these kind of hermetic times of flowering have kind of existed in different times. Like particularly we were talking about Frankfurt and the um, debris publishing house. What is, I don't what know if you're it? familiar with mm -hmm. that, but mm -hmm. the debris were like a family of, I guess, bookmakers and publishers and artists and like a lot of the alchemical works that we're familiar with from this time, like the end of the, I believe it's like 1500s um, into the 1600s and like Michael Meyer and yeah. um, Robert Flood, like they were producing these books and these Those works. are so cool. I didn't yeah. realize that there was, a, I didn't know about the publishing house, but those are such phenomenal, such phenomenal books. Like yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's cool to me to think about those times and then to compare them with our own, you know, and like the different artists and writers and um, bookmakers like William and galleries and things like that. People that are continuing these traditions and yeah. the relationships that are formed. It's yeah. yeah, like like William, you could put him in Frankfurt or you could put him in like Prague in the 15th century and like nobody would bat an eye. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, there's there's William making books over there. It's like, but, you know, it's like, but he's in 2022 downtown Seattle. Yep. You know, it's like, OK, he's timeless. Right. Yeah, I, I love William. He's been super supportive of me. Actually, my entire even for over 20 years at this point, I think my entire career. So um is he going to do, is he going to bring back the EBC, by the way? Did that just get like killed by COVID? No, I think it is going to come back. I don't know any details on that though, but yeah. And I think it's got the new name now still, the Texts and Traditions Colloquium, I believe. Okay. Yeah. But I, I sure hope so. Cause I would really love to go again. Yeah. That well, that's be. how we met, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, that's a, that that I feel is like the most important event in this whole world, at least the most at least in the U.S. I don't know about Europe. I guess they have stuff in the U.K. or, or maybe, I don't know. But that, I think, is the most important event. Oh, yeah. It's definitely very important for us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get a little... The last time I went was... Uh, the last time I saw Adam Parfrey, so that's kind of sad. But uh, I got... That 2017 or... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was there just, we were, Hannah and I were in the back with Adam Parfrey, just snickering and stuff. It was pretty funny. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Um, well, you, okay. You have another book coming out. I should mention that. I do. Yeah. That one's coming out July of 2023 and it's called the Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy, um, Imagination, Creativity, and the Great Work. So the first book really gets into hermetic philosophy. Um, alchemical theory and looking at the seven spheres in a mythological kind of comparative mythological sense and esoteric anatomy and magic. Um, the second book is more focused on art specifically and alchemy. So I kind of go through these different art periods from the um, 19th and early 20th centuries, like romanticism and symbolism, Dada and surrealism, and look at how the occult and alchemy have played a role in those art movements and how artists have worked with those concepts. And then I go from there into um, the four stages of the great work and how to apply this in the creative process or just how to understand it in terms of the creative process. 
So looking at the four stages and then looking also at these specific processes that play out within those stages. Um, so I think it's a pretty exciting book as an artist, um, but I think anyone working in a creative sense would find it pretty helpful and interesting. Well, tons and tons of artists and creative people, uh, not surprisingly, listen to this podcast. So I'm sure that'll be very interesting for them. When is that coming out? Um, July of next year. Of okay. this year. Great. Yeah. All right. Well, where can people find out more about you and buy books and maybe artwork? Uh, well, my website is probably the best place to go. And that's just my name. So Marlena7Bremner.com. Um, maybe you can have a link to that in the show notes. Seven and, is spelled out. Yeah, it's okay. all spelled out. Um, and then I have a Patreon and my Patreon account is just under 7art. And that's all spelled out as well. S-E-V-E-N-A-R-T. And so people can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month. And I've got a blog that goes back for years and um, at different tiers, you get different rewards. So like at the $3 tier, um, I do these artistic vision posts. So every time I finish a painting, I kind of dive into the symbology and kind of talk about the painting in depth. So anyway, that's Patreon and I'm on social media. So I'm on Instagram and Facebook. Um, Instagram is just M the number seven artist. And I post a lot there. Um, art and stuff about the books and also just stuff about what I have going on in my life. And, and then, yeah, Facebook, Marlena seven Bremner artist. So lots of places to connect with me. Um, and lots of ways to support my work if you're interested in doing that. Awesome. All right. Well, that was a great, great conversation. We'll have to, uh, have you back on when the, when the next one comes out. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class. And until next time, hang in there.